0: Hello, everyone. This is Paul Aronowitz, Health Sciences Professor of Clinical Medicine at UC Davis School of Medicine. I recently gave the keynote address for the Alpha Omega Alpha Induction Ceremony here at UC Davis, and it was suggested by one of the student leaders of that group that I turn it into a podcast. So here it is, minus all the introductory comments honoring our students for their unique achievements. Please also be patient with me as I continue to suffer from Bell's palsy. I'm at month three of this cursed affliction and continue to hope that it improves so that I don't sound and look like a lopsided talking basset hound. I have trouble with the B sounds and P sounds, so I hope you do not have trouble understanding me. Finally, I will say that I think this story that I tell, Finding George Dietre would make an excellent This American Life or Radio Diaries or anything else that is more mainstream podcast. So hello out there, Ira Glass. I read a few years ago that World War II veterans are dying at a rate of more than 1,000 per day, given their advancing ages. And I think so often their stories and their experiences die with them. But hopefully George Dietrich's story will live on. It is pretty amazing, and I'm lucky to have heard about it. I hope you all enjoy it, so here it goes. I've chosen this story, Finding George Dietra," because I heard it my fourth year of medical school when I was where much of the audience is now, their fourth year of medical school. I've also chosen George Dietra because I hope that it will be a memorable story, something you can take forward into your residency, training, and beyond. It's a story by and about a patient In medical education, we tend to remember patient stories, stories about them, and particularly the stories that surround their illnesses, how they began, how they progressed, or how they got better. Case-based conferences that begin with real patient cases and vignettes tend to glean the most attention and lead to some of the best education and some of the best retention of learning. So I thought about this a lot. Why is it that uh, this is the case? Why do we tend to remember the stories we hear in medicine by and about our patients? Well, for one thing, stories by and about our patients embed themselves in our memories because they are relevant. If a colleague is telling us about a patient or a colleague is presenting a patient's case at a morning conference or a morbidity and mortality conference or at Grand Rounds, We subconsciously or even consciously think, oh my, I might see this very same patient or disease in another patient or even the same patient tomorrow or next week. I'd better pay attention so I know what to do when I see that person. But I think more than the conscious relevance of those cases, there's something emotional, even if conveyed without emotion, about hearing about a real living patient. So that emotional connection and hearing about a particular patient connects something deep in our brains with the best efforts of our memory centers, and things just seem to stick. So what I thought I would do is to tell you a story about just one of the many memorable patients I have cared for over the years. And I met this patient during my fourth year of medical school, right about this time of year, in the wintertime. But unlike many stories we tell in medicine about our patients and the diseases they suffer from, this one is much less about this patient's disease and much more about this patient and a remarkable period in his life that I was lucky enough to have him share with me. Once long ago, far away from California in a land called Cleveland, Ohio, I was a medical student. I was at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. It was my fourth year. And I was living in the land of electives, mostly getting weekends off, cooking dinner with friends, planning a six-week trip to New Zealand with the woman who would later become my wife. It was the winter, and the winters in Cleveland are a little different than they are in California. There is snow and there is sleet and ice, and it is cold most of the time, and the skies are cloudy because of the lake effect from Lake Erie that tends to press in upon the city of Cleveland. So I had done well my third year, and in the middle of the winter, I was doing a nephrology elective at the Cleveland VA Hospital. Uh, So nephrology is basically study and care of patients with kidney disease. So I would see a couple of new consults each day. Most of the consult questions tended to be, is this patient's kidney failure from volume depletion or from something more serious? I loved the kidneys and was contemplating a career in nephrology, but after a few days on service with a very good nephrology attending and a fellow who was studying to be an attending nephrologist, I began to notice a certain dissociation between myself and my patients. In a universe where kidney disease can be all about the numbers, the creatinine, the urine output, the sodium or the potassium, I began to feel like I'd come to see the patients more as collections of numbers than as human beings suffering from disease. But this wasn't just about nephrology and the kidneys. This was me, and this was having been through the rigors of third year of medical school, which is the most intense year of a medical student's life. To some degree, I'd mastered a small part of medicine, the art of being a good medical student. But as the renal elective wore on, I came to realize that mastering that art of being a good medical student had taken a toll. These days, I guess you would say that I was a little burned out, that I needed a vacation even, perhaps. This feeling came up on me subtly, though, and I didn't like it. Because despite the hours and the demands and the stress of being a medical student, so far I had truly enjoyed it. I couldn't believe that I could walk into a patient's room in the clinic or the hospital and ask almost any question I wanted, and a patient would answer it, no matter how sensitive the subject matter. But now, the winter of my fourth year in Cleveland, Ohio, at the Cleveland VA Hospital, I was feeling removed from patients as people. They seemed more like receptacles of data than living, breathing things with stories to tell. This really bothered me a lot. I wondered if this was the road to ruination, to becoming a bad, uncaring doctor who didn't care if his skills atrophied or his patients left dissatisfied or feeling like the doctor hadn't listened to them or cared about them. Unaware that this feeling was probably pretty common among my peers, both at my school and across the country, and we just didn't talk about it, and I'm certain continues to be an issue even today in medical schools across the country, I wasn't quite sure what to do about it. About it. Some of it was probably a good thing to learn the professional distance you need to keep from patients and to learn that you can't become emotionally attached to every single patient you take care of, or you'd be bound for dreadful burnout after just a few years in medicine. But I really felt too distant and I wasn't happy and I worried that I'd lost my way. Well, as luck would have it, I found George Dietra or he found me, or we found each other, something along those lines. Somewhere about the middle of the month on the kidney service, when I was at my low point, the nephrology fellow asked me to go see a man named George Dietra. Mr. Dietra, the fellow told me, had leukemia that was not treatable and was admitted periodically for blood transfusions. On this occasion, George had presented with severe anemia, and his BUN and creatinine, which are markers of uh, potentially acute kidney failure were elevated. The medical team consulting us wanted to know if Mr. Dietra had, guess what, volume depletion or something worse. For those in our uh, who are non-medical in our podcast audience, volume depletion causing acute kidney injury is called prerenal azotemia. It just means that the body is sort of dehydrated or there's not enough blood in the vessels to perfuse the kidneys and keep them working correctly. So I went and reviewed George Dietrich's old records, which were many. He had been sick for a few months and had had many hospitalizations for infection and anemia. And then I went in and talked with and examined him. Not to generalize, but to generalize, he was a typical World War II-era veteran. Stoic, kind, happy to see me, happy to have someone to break up his day and to talk with. He couldn't care less whether I was a student or an attending physician, or the dean of the medical school. And like most vets at the Cleveland VA that I met, he called me Doc. I eventually concluded he was volume depleted, that he had prerenal azotemia. He hadn't been eating or drinking much before he got admitted to the hospital. And on examination, his mucous membranes were parched. And he was very anemic on his labs. I told him I'd talk with his primary team of doctors and that I'd see him again the next day. We shook hands, and I left. I found the primary team and told them that I thought that their patient, George Dietra, had prerenal azotemia, and that they should give blood and intravenous fluids, and told them I'd run it by my attending, but that, that was what I thought. It was an easy consult, as consults go, a slam dunk, as we like to say in medicine. So back in those days, when we wanted to put a consultation into the patient's medical chart, we had to write it with a thing called a pen. And this this was a decade before electronic medical records came into prominence. And so our handwriting was important in those days, but probably even more importantly than that, we had to write it on a special VA consult paper, which was in triplicate, and had a form number on it, number 929.7H, or some number like that. All the VA documents had official numbers. We had to stamp the triplicate form with the patient's purple VA card, Using something called an addressograph, now there were few greater things invented and used in medical care than the addressograph. Now that is only in my opinion, but I love the addressograph. You either loved them or you hated them. so Back in those days, the students and the residents used to draw a lot of blood, labs and blood cultures, and we collect various other bodily substances. But the labels that went around the tubes or the jars of body specimens and fluids each had to be stamped first using the card in the addressograph. The lab forms that went with the specimens, consult forms, and progress note, and history and physical note paper, all had to be stamped with the patient's name and social security number that was imprinted on the patient's purple VA card. Well, personally, I loved doing this. To me, this bit of What we called SCUT, which was really uh, work that a clerk or technician could have done rather than a student or an MD, was one of the most satisfying things I ever got to do as a student or an intern or a resident, putting the card into the little square space that held it snugly. Then, putting the label or progress note paper on top of it, and then slamming the top of the machine down, causing a little roller to roll ink over the embossed portion of the card was just plain fun. I got the feeling of completion of some small task in a day full of the complexities of patient care. Some of my colleagues hated it, though, in fact, almost all of my colleagues hated it; they thought it was scut and it was scut. SCUT was defined as something that a clerk or a technician to do could do, but uh, it was often seen as a waste of a physician or a student's time. But there were very few clerks or technicians, and so we were the labor. We filled this void in many hospitals across the United States. But to me, not all SCUT was a bad thing, especially if it was m- as much fun as slamming down the top of that addressograph. I should also properly insert here, though not necessarily relevant to this story, that I also loved internship when I started it the following year. My co-interns told me never to admit that, though, that someone would lock me up and throw away the key if it was ever known that I had loved internship. You were supposed to hate your internship, to see it as the worst year of your life, but I didn't end up seeing it that way. But then again, I loved the addressograph, so there you go. So I found George Dietrich's purple card in a rack on the counter in the ward area with all the other purple cards of the patients on that ward and placed it snugly in the addressograph and popped in the triplicate consult paper and flung down the top of the machine to see his name and social security number embossed across the paper up in the corner where it belonged. But as I was carrying his card back to return it to the rack, I noticed something odd. Down in the corner, away from everything else, was something I hadn't seen on one of these purple VA cards before. It said, POW-1388. All one word, POW-1388. Huh, I thought, POW-1388. How odd. Capital P, capital O, capital W. POW. P-O-W? Yes, that must have been it. But what of the 1388? The military liked to assign numbers to people, so maybe he was the 1,388th POW during World War II. Or maybe he'd been a POW for 1,388 days. I did the math in my head, wondering if World War II had even lasted that long, and decided that was definitely not what it meant that'd be something like close to four years. The war started December 8th, 1941, a day after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, and ended in June 1945 after the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, so being a POW for that long seemed highly unlikely. I was intrigued, however, but it was late and I needed to write my note and present the case to my team and follow up on some other numbers for other patients that we were seeing, so I left it at that. The next day, I checked George Dietrich's labs before I saw him and was pleased to see that his creatinine had fallen and his anemia was much better after getting blood overnight. He was feeling better and joking about how leukemia couldn't keep him down. I felt very satisfied with myself. That day, he seemed to have this youthful twinkle in his eyes, despite his illness. After I was done checking in on his health and examining him, I asked him about the POW 1388 on his card. Was he a POW in the war? Yes, he said, in the Asiatic Theater, as it was known in those days. And what of the 1388? Was that his POW number the VA had assigned him? He laughed. George was 70 years old, thin, with rugged, handsome features. He looked like a Navy man. I was a prisoner of war for 1,388 days during World War II, almost four years, a very, very long time ago. He chuckled, clearly pleased that I had asked him about this. George had joined the Navy straight out of high school in 1939. His goal was to see the world, to have an adventure, and he got more than he ever bargained for. His ship, a cruiser by the name of the USS Houston, had been Franklin Delano Roosevelt's favorite ship in the U.S. Navy. The USS Houston had been reported to have been sunk multiple times by the Japanese, but kept reappearing throughout Indonesia, earning it the nickname, the Galloping Ghost of the Java Coast. But on the night of February 28, 1942, the Houston ran out of luck and was sunk by Japanese artillery in the Sunda Straits during a large battle known as as the Naval Battle of Java. Eleven Allied ships were sunk, as well as nine or ten Japanese ships. Only about 360 men of the 1,100 aboard the Houston survived the immediate sinking in the Sundas Straits. George wanted to continue the story, but I had patience to see. I asked him if it would be okay if I brought a tape recorder by the evening of the next day after I was done with my work. And so it began. I would drop by for an hour or two after he'd had his dinner, and he would tell me stories of his time as a POW. This went on for days. Unlike most of my encounters with other patients I'd known, I made no attempt to direct George's answers. I didn't extrapolate, summarize, or interrupt him. I sat back in my creaky vinyl VA chair, listening to a dying man tell me about a world I had never been part of, nor would ever be part of. About the sinking of the Houston, George said, I treaded water about a half a mile from the ship, watching the sparks fly, the ship sinking. There was a moon that night. "'You don't get to see this every day,' I kept saying to myself. "'George swam to shore, helping a friend of his from on board, "'where he and the other survivors were picked up by the Japanese patrols at dawn. "'This began his incarceration, one that would last almost four years. "'When I occasionally apologized to George for bothering him, "'he said, "'I have nothing better to do except to die,' and he would laugh stoically. "'In his eyes there was something young,' overflowing with the lives he'd lived long before he was my age. There was a generosity of spirit, and there was a great sense of humor. Most of the doctors involved in George's care expected him to die within a few days. His anemia worsened and his platelets transiently plummeted. He developed pneumonia a couple of days after I'd begun taping his stories. Despite a fever and significant shortness of breath and a cough, he insisted upon continuing. He went on. After the Japanese picked us up, after I swam to shore, we were treated pretty well. We were taken to a small hut and kept there for 30 days with 20 other prisoners, Dutch, English, and American. We were then trucked to Batavia, later known as Yogyakarta, on Java, where we stayed in a place called the bicycle camp for eight months. We passed the time on work details, but eventually any man who knew anything became a teacher. Teaching from memory, there were no books there. We started courses on almost every subject imaginable. You could take navigation, acting, music, literature, or engineering. I took an extensive course in trigonometry so that I could eventually study navigation. We had night lectures by any soldier or sailor with an interesting story to tell. One night, an Australian would tell us about fishing along the Great Barrier Reef. On another evening, a Texan would talk about how to drill an oil well. I received the finest of liberal arts educations in that camp. George chuckled happily to himself. If I'd spent the whole war in that camp, life as a POW would not have been all that bad. But things became much harsh, harsher after we were moved. I sat in George's room each evening after he would eaten a few mouthfuls of dinner, listening to him tell stories about the more mundane aspects of his life as a POW. At times, his voice dropped to a whisper, drawing me forward in my chair. His stories building to some artful climax. At others, he could barely contain his laughter as he recalled a humorous moment during his internment. Occasionally, I would stop listening, relying upon my small tape recorder to capture George's words, and I just watched George, his hands crossed on his thin chest, the skin loose over his face. His eyes glowed as he recalled those days. Initially, I found it odd that any person could have survived almost four years of harsh captivity— But in George's case, it became obvious that his positive outlook and sense of humor had buoyed him through those difficult years. That, and probably a lot of luck. Despite the deaths happening all the time around him, the privation, the near starvation, the unfamiliarity of his surroundings, they had been the greatest adventure of his life. Experiences as a POW were taken day by day, and to survive each of those days, one had to look to the positive in things. George was pretty clearly able to do this. After eight months in Batavia, he continued, we were crammed into the hold of a ship and made a four-day trip from Java to Singapore. There we were placed in the Changi Camp. Of course, the Changi Camp later became famous in James Clavell's novel, King Rat, and that was also made into a movie, for those of you that have seen it. We were there for two months, and life was much tougher for us, he said. We spent the days digging out tree stumps and working in the vegetable gardens. Finally, we were moved by train and then by ship up the Malaysian Peninsula to Mulmain, Burma. While en route to Burma, a British bomber sank two of the three ships carrying prisoners. Our ship was commanded by a Japanese naval officer who had gone to college in Missouri before the war. He spent several days backtracking to try and pick up survivors and picked up as many as he could find. Still, a lot of good men died from that bomber attack. George told me the Japanese ship's captain was not sympathetic to the Japanese cause and subtly encouraged the prisoners to commandeer the vessel. I've always felt we lost a big chance to take over that ship and make a run for India, but our superior officers refused to approve a fight to take over the ship. If we'd taken over that ship and successfully made it to Allied territory, we would have been able to save a lot of good people from dying up in the jungles in Burma. George arrived in Burma in January 1943. There amid heat, dust, and extreme deprivation, he joined in the work on what became known as the Burma Death Railroad. This railroad was later made famous in the movie Bridge on the River Kwai. George told me the place was guarded by Korean conscripts who were nearly as miserable as we were. With the Japanese looking the other way, they regularly beat us. The abuse was tremendous. One guard liked to do bayonet practice on me, seeing how close he could come to my nose with his bayonet tip. He cut my face once. Other times he would load and unload his rifle several times until I wasn't sure whether the weapon had a bullet in it or not. Then he'd point the gun at my forehead and pull the trigger russian roulette george spent the next two years working on the burma railroad watching the men around him die of malnutrition malaria and various other infections the horrors he witnessed were punctuated by rare moments of humor the camp was ringed by hundreds of miles of jungle so no one tried to escape he told me one day a kid from nebraska came into camp and said look i found two cats out there in the jungle I took one look at them and nearly died laughing. They were the most beautiful little kittens I'd ever seen with large striped heads and soft fur. They were tiger cubs. Their mama is going to come in here and clean this camp out when she realizes those cubs are gone, I said to the kid from Nebraska. He was too scared to take them back where he'd found them, so a large group of us carried them out in the jungle and dropped them off. With a combination of luck and health George ultimately survived the jungles of Burma and when the railway line was completed he was shipped to Japan where he worked mining coal in the mountains near Nagasaki until the war ended. He was only 30 miles from Nagasaki when the bomb that helped end the war was dropped. He and his co-prisoners were expecting to be executed by the Japanese guards but to George's dismay the commander of the guards came to him bowed and presented his sword to George who was the senior ranking officer of the prisoners by that point. They were surrendering. George stayed in the Navy until his retirement in 1959 and then worked as a boiler and elevator inspector for an insurance company in northern Ohio, retiring in 1977. Through the evenings, George would talk until he was too tired to continue. His pneumonia gradually improved on antibiotics, and after 10 days in the hospital, it was decided that he was to be sent home to spend his last few days of life there. I arranged to visit his home in the suburb a few days later so that I could take some photos of him and record a few more stories. I honestly had no idea what I would do with the tapes or photos, but it was George's last wish that I'd find somewhere to publish his previously unpublished story. The last time I saw George, he was sitting in a large, brown, reclining chair in his living room, his wife cooking in the kitchen. He was proudly telling me about how he'd built his house with his own two hands. His doctor said he would die within a few days, or at most a few weeks. But with the aid of a blood transfusion every week or so, he continued to live, surprisingly, for over a year. George's doctors were surprised by his tenacity. I was not. While they had been taking care of him, tending to his numbers, keeping him comfortable, assuring that he was well cared for, I'd been listening to him. George was a survivor. He'd had one last chance to tell his story, and I'd had only one chance to hear it. To this day, in finding George Dietra, I'm not sure whether I helped George die a better death or whether he helped me be a better physician, but there was probably a lot of both things in that time we spent together. And I did fulfill George's wish, and I wrote a story that was published in a magazine about George and my meetings with him. And I sent it to his wife after it came out, after George had died. And she wrote me back, and this is what she said. And I should say that it came in a thank you card that had thank you on the front, and inside it said, your kindness was greatly appreciated, Margot R. Dietra. And inside, there was a copy of the obituary about George, and in a letter from Mrs. Dietra, that was dated June 25, 1991. Dear Dr. Paul, Thank you for sending the story you wrote about George's wartime POW experiences. It was very well written, and I enjoyed reading it. George, unfortunately, has passed away May 13, 1990. His last stay in the hospital was for four days, where he died. For a number of months, he had been getting three units of blood each week. That was quite an ordeal. They did everything humanly possible to save him. Congratulations on your upcoming marriage, and I wish you all the best in your career and future. Sincerely, Margot R. Dietra. So what did I learn from this patient during a time when I was feeling somewhat burned out from what had otherwise been a pretty great experience, in fact, a great adventure of my own that I'd had during medical school? I think that we often think of patients themselves as a potential source of burnout, They demand much from us. They seek help and support that we sometimes cannot provide. We cannot cure all of them. Sometimes it feels like they wear us down. Sometimes it feels like their diseases are more in charge of things than we are. But what we don't see is that they also can be a huge source of energy and inspiration to us. But we have to seek them out and listen to them to find this inspiration. So in conclusion... I would urge all of you that are studying to be doctors, that are doctors, whoever's listening to this, when you're feeling a little dissociated from patients and a little unsure whether you made the right choice in entering the field of medicine to seek out and find your own George Dietrichs. Most of your patients will not have a story quite as amazing as George's, but take my word for it, they will have other amazing stories to tell you about other things. Finally, I will tell you that a few years later, during my residency, I was taking care of a patient on the hematology oncology unit, the cancer unit at UCSF Medical Center in San Francisco. Oddly enough, this patient, too, had leukemia. He looked like a military man, and so I began asking him where he had served. It turned out he also had been a POW in Burma during World War II. I asked him if he happened to know a man named George Dietra. George, yep, one of the most generous and funniest men I ever met in my life, he said, matter-of-factly. Yes, I said, he sure was that, and more. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I hope that you've enjoyed it. Have a good day.